Good morning. It is good to be here this morning, and it's good that you are here this morning. <coughs> this is my third sermon, and I do hope my voice makes it through this sermon. I just got used to preaching one sermon for the last two months, and now there's three. Um, just so you know, uh, this sermon is going to be short. You're going to probably feel about halfway through the, ser- or the end of the sermon that it was half a sermon. Well, it was. I cut it right in half. So we'll have um, uh, the second half of this sermon next week, really. Um, and that, the purpose of that is just, I know there's a lot of families in here, and we want the kids to be here. And at the same time, we don't want to have an hour and a half, two hours service. Um, so uh, the sermon will be short. Um, the kids have done great, both services. And if your kid makes noise, that's awesome. Um, we are happy to have families here this morning. And... Um, um, and so, parents, uh, there is overflow if you want to use that, but um, I will just speak louder, and we will be joy-filled that we are together. It has been a joy-filled morning, and a few people have asked, um, hey, how's your voice going to make it through it? Are you have enough energy? Uh, to be honest, uh, preaching to a camera was way harder than doing three sermons with people in the room. Uh, I mean, just motivation— was hard, and um, I am motivated and excited, and if we have to do this to meet together, we will continue to do this to meet together. We want to be obedient. That's been our heart, Um, and so we're trying to obey the state, like I said, the best we can, and that's why we're doing this, and I would ask, please, um, have patience and grace toward each other, towards the leadership, toward what we are doing. Um, We are doing our best, and I would just ask for your grace. The community is watching us. Society is falling apart, and the church needs to be unified. The church needs to be a place where there's peace, not arguments towards each other. And so we need to be gracious. There's different opinions all over the place on everything that's happening. Don't wreck unity to voice your opinion. Don't wreck unity to voice your opinion. We can speak truth, and we're not about not speaking truth. But if it's just to argue and, and give your opinion, please, let's not do that. Let's be a witness to this community of unity. Um, So with that said, thank you. It's good to see everyone here. And I need to get going because we will be here way too long if I don't. And my voice will be done before I even start the sermon. So if you would turn to Isaiah um, 36. Isaiah 36, verse 1. Uh, People have been asking, when are we going to be back in Ephesians? We will be back in Ephesians in two weeks, going verse by verse through Ephesians and and finishing um, the the book of Ephesians. But I've been praying um, since this pandemic, uh, since this virus came, um, I've been praying, God, what would you have me as a pastor preach and address and, and, and share with the congregation as we're going through this and um, these world events that we see? And there's three, three main things that popped up in my head. I hope they were put there by the Holy Spirit. It could have been just my own reasoning. I don't know. But there's three things that jumped out at me um, that I felt like we needed to cover as a church. And, and the first one was the these aren't first in orders of importance, but they're just, the first one was the church and the state, the relationship between the church and the state. Um, it's why we had two sermons last week and the week before on the church and the state, and what the Bible says about the responsibilities of both, and um, we as Christians. And so we spent some time on that, and I'm glad we did, because an election is coming, and it's going to be ugly, and I hope we as a congregation, as a body, are um, a testimony to that, to the, um, to the community that's around us. So the first one was the church and the state. The second, and this is so important, is church unity. Um, 
the events that we are seeing right now, this virus threatens the unity of the church and even our church. Uh, there, it threatens um, the unity of the church, which threatens our, our witness to our community. Um, Jesus has made it clear they will know us by our love. Um, and uh, Ephesians, thankfully, we've been talking about unity for a long time now, for a year, First John and then Ephesians. Um, and we're going to jump back in Ephesians and talk about unity again. But I would encourage you um, to think of ways you can love and be patient and gracious toward each other. But the, the third topic that just popped in my mind that I think we need to cover is fear. Is fear. You know, every person I've talked to is struggling at some level with fear. It might be fear from this virus. I've seen people and I've talked to people that, are, that have crippling fear from this virus. They, they can't leave their house. They want to leave their house. They know they're being unreasonable in the things they're doing, but are so fearful they're crippled because of this virus. Some people are afraid of the government. They're seeing the government take freedoms away, and there's this fear and this distrust of the government. Some people are afraid of the economic fallout uh, of what's happening in the last two months and, and seeing their savings disappear, their retirement disappear, or even losing jobs or uncertain what the future holds with their jobs. And there's some that I think are just fearful of society itself and seeing these riots and, and what is going on in America as a whole, the society just kind of falling apart in front of our eyes. But what's common in all these things, and what's common across the board, no matter what you believe about this virus or not, is fear. Is fear. Fear of circumstances that are surrounding us. And for some, this fear is suffocating. It's suffocating. So the sermon today and next week is titled this, Trusting God in times of uncertainty. Trusting God in times of uncertainty. Once we get through these two verses, I promise we'll be back in Ephesians and going verse by verse because God is sovereign and we are going to go through the book of Ephesians. But I want to start this morning by talking about the book of Job. The book of Job. And I've said this before. Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Now, Genesis obviously talks about things that happened before the book of Job. It talks about the beginning. But Genesis was written by Moses, and that was after the book of Job was written, most theologians believe. Um, and because of this, many theologians look at Job as an introduction to the Bible as a whole, showing the need for revelation. I mean, think about the book of Job, right? Most of us know the story of Job and what happened to, to Job. Um, What's interesting about the book of Job is that story is just the first two chapters of Job. Job is 42 chapters long. And I think most of us, when we go through Job, or a lot of us may have one point in it, thought, hey, it'd be good to do a study in Job and start reading and go, oh my goodness, the story's here, and then it stops. And then you have chapters 3 through 31, and you're like, what is this? Most of, Job's most of Job, chapter 3 through 31, is man's attempt in explaining reality. Man's attempt in explaining, interpreting reality and failing. Reality was that Job lost his fortune. This man that was rich lost his fortune. He, he lost his family, and I sometimes think we overlook that. He had a large family, and they all died one day. Lost his family and became critically ill to the point he was unrecognizable. 
seems like that Job's life was completely out of control. Now, if you're reading Job, you know that's not the case. But if you're a living Job, if you're Job in the moment, it seems like his life is out of control. And Job wanted to know where was God. He wanted to know what was God doing. Why would you allow this God to happen? And here comes Job's three friends, one who was a scientist, one who was a philosopher, and one who was a historian. The smartest men of their day come and couldn't explain reality. They couldn't explain why. They thought if someone shouldn't suffer, it would be a righteous man, and and if someone could handle suffering, it would be a rich man. And Job was both. Job is really man's attempt of interpreting the reality that's around them without revelation and failing. Listen, this is something that we need to understand. Human beings are interpreters. It's what we do. We interpret the reality around us. Right? If you watch the news, it's man's interpretation of what's happening. Right? They're interpreters. We're interpreters. It's man's best guesses. It's like Job's three friends trying to interpret reality. All three friends failed. Yet, the reader of Job, the reader of Job gets the privilege to see behind the scenes. God reveals to the reader that there's more going on to the story of Job than what meets the eye. The book of Job really shows us two things. One is that without God's revelation, we are completely and utterly lost. Man's best guesses, the smartest men in the world, fall short without revelation. But the second thing the book of Job shows us is that God is completely in control of everything. He's completely in control of everything. The devil couldn't do anything that God did not allow the devil to do. In fact, God was the one that pointed out Job in the first place. When God pulls back the curtain, that's what revelation is. He's showing us truths we would otherwise not know. When he pulls back the curtain and shows us what is going on behind the scenes, he shows us that he is completely sovereign over everything. We see this throughout Scripture. Just some examples. Psalms 139.16 says this, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. God knew every single moment of our life before we ever were born. Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You think, you think everything happens by chance, in other words? You think it's like a, the roll of the dice, the lot? Every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 21, 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God is sovereign even over our own government. Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or Matthew 10.29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, they're worthless. Worthless animal. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from my Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. 
fear not. Therefore, you are, are more value than many sparrows. Right? God is sovereign over everything. Everything. Right? It's not just random verses that say that. It, it's stories. Every story in Scripture shows. There's like a common theme throughout Scripture that God is in control. I mean, that's what it means to, to be God. I mean, Joseph and his brothers, a great example. Joseph gets thrown into slavery by his brothers, and then from there he gets thrown into prison. And we know the end of the story, so we get excited as we're reading through this. But think of Joseph when he was in prison. Why would you allow this to happen, God? And what happens? He ends up being second command in Egypt, right? Able to save his family from famine. And then he says this to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, that's the brothers, as for you, you meant evil in throwing me in slavery. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people, that includes the brothers that threw him into slavery, should be kept alive as they are today. My favorite story of showing God's sovereignty is actually Kings 22, one of the most wicked kings of Israel. God says, you're going to die, right? The next war, you're dead. So this king, thinking he could escape God's sovereign plan somehow, dresses up someone else as, a, as the king, and he just dresses as a normal person, right? And then 1 Kings 22:34 says this, but a certain man, meaning a random person, drew his bow at random. A random person shot a random arrow randomly in the air and it struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and between his breastplate and he died from man's perspective this is a random universe from man's perspective God is not in control man's interpretation it's just randomness at best if there is a God he's deistic he's hands off he doesn't get involved in man's life or he limits his sovereignty he, he's not involved in your life but the God of the Bible is completely sovereign and in control of everything. I love R.C. Sproul. He says there's not a maverick molecule. Not one molecule in the universe that's outside of God's control. I mean, think about this, right? I just want you to think. Job never got the answer to why. We, we don't get the answer to why in Job. But yet, at the end of Job, Job trusts God. What happens? He sees him. That's all he needed. And God showed him, right? When he saw God, he said, I, that's it, I trust you. I trust you. So I want to look at Isaiah chapter 36, verse 1. Let me jump into some of the context here of what's going on. Uh, Israel, at this point, has been split into two nations. And we see that in First and Second Kings. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, which is ten tribes. Ten tribes out of the eleven tribes. And they're, they're called Israel because they're the majority of Israel. In the southern kingdom, there's one tribe, and there's a tribe that's split between the two. Um, and that, that southern kingdom is called Judah because it's, it's the one tribe, Judah. Right? At this point in history, what we're seeing in Isaiah 36, the northern kingdom, Israel, has been destroyed. They've been taken to exile by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, is being threatened by this massive army, Assyria. Right? Being threatened by a world power, by a massive, brutal arm army. So let's look at verse 1. It says this. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. 
And the king of Assyria sent the uh, Rabshakeh from Lechish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit in the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. There's a couple things that we need to know when it comes to the context of this story. The first, the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh. It's a fancy word. Um, it, it really is just the uh, royal counselor. In the NIV, it actually translates it the chief official. In other words, the Rabshakeh is a title. It's not a name. Second, this was a great army, at least 185,000 troops, as we will see. A massive army. Third, Lachish is, is a, a city south of Jerusalem, so they're coming up that direction. Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, is actually north of Jerusalem. This tells us that Jerusalem is completely surrounded by this massive army. Fourth thing that you need to understand, and it's not seen in this passage so far, but historical context tells us that this is one of the most brutal armies ever. They treated their captives like animals. They would pull them away with hooks in their noses and mouths. They would torture their enemies. It was so bad, there's actually historical stories of whole cities committing mass suicide not to face the torture that would come when this army would destroy the city. I'm not talking about suffocating fear. What's interesting, and this is one of the reasons this passage jumped out at me, is that they were stuck at home. I mean, think about that. They were sheltering at home in Jerusalem. They couldn't leave. They were stuck in their, their small city, surrounded by a threat. I think at this point, one of the only places that really feels safe is to hatch me, right? There's a lot of us that don't even want to leave this mountain. So I think this story is relevant. But here's the good news. Judah is going to be saved. They're going to be saved by God. How do I know this? Well, if you keep reading, you'll see that. But it was prophesied 20 to 50 years before this event that they would be saved. In fact, before King Hezekiah was ever a king, in Hosea um, 1.7, it says this, I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. This is promised salvation for this event that's happening. And listen to what God says. He says this, I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. In other words, it will be a miraculous salvation. They will have to just trust me. So skip down to verse 4. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? The Rabshakeh is using psychological warfare. This was kind of the way the Assyrians did this. That's why they tortured the people that they, they conquered, because they wanted people to be afraid of them, that they would just surrender, and they wouldn't even have to go to war with them. And so he's entering into the psychological warfare with, with Judah. And he starts by dishonoring their king, right? King Hezekiah. He doesn't use the kingly title. He just says, hey, go tell Hezekiah. Right? You can contrast with the great king, the king of Assyria. And he asks a question, on what do you rest this trust of yours? This is a defining question of the entire passage. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Who are you trusting in, in other words? Rabshakeh's goal 
It's to shake the people's trust in King Hezekiah and really to shake their trust in God. And he gives eight arguments. And, and we're going to go through these arguments real quickly right now, but I just want you to think. Just put yourself in this position how scary this would have been. Eight arguments on why Judah should just surrender. First argument is found in verse 5. It says this, Do you think that mere words are strategies and powers for war? In whom do you put, or in whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? In other words, don't just trust the words of Hezekiah and what they're saying and these prophecies, right? We are the Assyrian army. We are massive and powerful, and we are about to kill you. Second argument is found in verse 6. Behold, you were trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. And in, in other words, the Assyrians thought maybe Israel's confidence that they're not surrendering is because they think Egypt's going to come and save them somehow. But here's the problem. Jerusalem is completely surrounded. Right? And Egypt is weak, not trustworthy. Third argument, verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Hezekiah was a, a righteous king, one of the few righteous kings in the history of Israel. He tore down all the high places, all the false worship um, to false gods or worshiping the true God falsely which made no sense to the Assyrians. Right? In their theology, in their bad theology, the more gods, the better, the more altars, the better, the more high places, the better, the more likely you would be able to succeed in warfare. It made absolutely no sense to the Assyrians. You know, I, I just was thinking at this point this morning, you know, what we do as Christians makes no sense to a secular world. And one of the things that jumped in my mind is the need for fellowship. I think people just see us and go, why do they need to get together so badly? And it makes no sense to the culture around us. But it's a testimony. A testimony to who God is, a God of community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who commune together. fourth argument is found in verse 8. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to part to set riders on them. In other words, he's being sarcastic here, but he's like, I'll spot you 2,000 horses. We have 2,000 to spare. You guys need some. So here you go, 2,000 horses, but pretty sure you don't even have riders for that many horses. And if you did, verse 9, how then can you re, uh, repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? So that he's saying, even if we gave you horses, or even if, if Egypt gave you horsemen and chariots, my servants are more skilled in warfare than your highest captains. Which is probably true. There was no hope, he was saying. Militarily, there's no hope. From man's perspective, there's no hope. Without revelation from God, from man's interpretation, there is absolutely no hope for Israel, for Judah. Which leads to the fifth argument found in verse 10. Moreover, 
It is without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So Rabshakeh, this chief official, somehow knew that God was using the Assyrians to punish Israel, but, but we learn that God was using the Assyrians to punish the northern kingdom. He promised to save the southern kingdom. But it gets me thinking, how did he know this? How did he know the prophecies that God was using Assyria to punish Israel? Here's my guess, and this is just a guess. It's an educated guess from the passage that we're going over. I think the Rabshakeh, the chief official, may have been a Jewish traitor. There's a couple reasons I believe this. One of them is he knew, he partly knew the prophecies. That Assyria was a God's, um, was being used by God to punish Israel. We see that in Isaiah 10. But look at verse 11. It says this, Then Helakim and, she, and Shebna and uh, Joah, these are the Hezekiah's officials, said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah. In other words, he knew Hebrew fluently within the hearing of the people who were on the wall. Aramaic was a common language of all the nations in this time. It was like the trade language that the, the, the educated people would speak, and the officials in Judah knew that language, and so they're saying, hey, speak to us in Aramaic so the people can't hear these arguments. But the Rabshakeh was speaking in Hebrew, right, fluently, so that everyone could hear him. He knew Hebrew. It's one of the reasons I think he may have been a Jewish traitor. Look at verse 12. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? He's trying to scare all the people. It's one of the reasons he's speaking Hebrew to everyone. Again, this is psychological war warfare. He's telling the people, if you follow Hezekiah, if you don't surrender, you are doomed. You are doomed to eat your own dung and drink your own urine. What's that mean? Well, that's how you attack the walled city. Jerusalem was a walled city. They, what you do with a walled city is you surround the walled city and cut off all food and water supply. And you starve the people to death. And that's what he's promising to do. Verse 13, then the Shabraka, Arab Shaka, um, stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the words of the king, great king, the king of Assyria. Here's the sixth argument, verse 14. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us this city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. In other words, King Hezekiah can't save you, and God can't save you. Instead, trust in me, and that's the seventh argument. Look at verse 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will, will eat from his own vine, and each one of, of, of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. And it's not going to be bad. If you surrender, we'll take care of you. We won't torture you if you surrender. And think about this. If the Rabshakeh was truly a Jewish traitor, this argument holds some weight because he could say, look at me, they've taken care of me. 
which leads to the eighth and final argument in verse 18. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath or Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hands? And the northern kingdom, that was the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, they're gone. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hands? In other words, don't trust God. Look at the circumstances. Look at the situation you're in. You're you're not going to be delivered. He can't save you. This is outside of God's control. King of Assyria is saying, I am more powerful than your God. And from man's perspective, this is true. Without revelation, from man's perspective, this was an impossible situation. How is Judah going to fight this massive world power? Eight scary arguments. And I just, again, I want you to take that. Sometimes we read these stories and and we know the ending, and we know what's going to happen, or we just kind of read them and don't go, what would that have been like? And take a second and put yourself in the story. Stuck at home. Threat of death. Threat of starvation. Threat of torture. A massive army that you could hear them, I'm sure, sitting outside of the walls, waiting to kill everyone. And look at the people's response. Verse 21. But they were silence, or they were silent, and answered him not a word for the kings, that's King Hezekiah, for he commanded, command was, do not answer him. In other words, the people followed King Hezekiah. He was a righteous king, and he must have been an amazing leader. Right? Follow me, he was saying. Follow me as I follow the Lord. Follow me as I trust Yahweh. Because the Lord has promised us salvation. Hosea 1, verse 7, I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them. We're going to finish the story next week. We're going to finish the story next week, uh, and we'll see how God miraculously saves Judah from this situation. But I want to end just with a question this morning as we leave. What does it mean to trust God? What does it mean to trust God? Because this passage is all about trusting God in this situation. You see Isaiah, a lot of Isaiah is talking to the kings and the people saying, trust God. What does it mean to trust God? I think it's important that we think deeply about this because, because what it means is that you trust in who God is. Think about that. Trusting God is directly connected to what one believes about God's character. It's why faith is such a big deal, right? Faith and trusting, right? Faith is such a big deal. Faith glorifies God because faith says you have a trustworthy character. Trusting in who God is. And he does. He has a trustworthy character. The Bible is very clear, right, that God's trustworthy because he's holy. Because he's good. We're just saying the goodness of God goodness of Jesus. He's righteous. He's just. Listen, God is just. You know what that means? 
That means when we see injustice in the, in the world, when we see riots or, or people getting killed that, that shouldn't have been killed, we know that one day God will make every wrong right. That he will administrate justice and he will do it 100% correctly because he knows man's motives. And we can trust in that. He's gracious. He's loving. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. In fact, there's three truths about God that we need to hold on tightly in these uncertain times. The first one is this. God is completely sovereign over everything. In other words, there's not a maverick molecule. You know how comforting that is? There's not a maverick molecule. God is completely sovereign over everything. The second thing we need to hold on to is God is completely good and loving. Listen, God loves you. If you're a Christian this morning, you are a part of his family. He has adopted you into his family. He is your father, and he loves you. If you're not a Christian, put your faith in God. Trust that Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for your sins. Trust in him and be adopted into this family. And he raised, he was raised on the third day, and he is the king of kings and lord of lords, meaning he is sovereign. God is completely sovereign. God is completely good and loving. And you know what? I think a lot of people struggle with those things, but I really think what people truly struggle with is this third one. God is completely 100% wise. When we ask, why, God, are you doing this? We're not questioning his sovereignty. We wouldn't question him because it would be outside of his control. We ask, why, God, are you doing this? We're not asking because we don't think he loves us. Otherwise, we wouldn't ask him. We ask, why, God, are you doing this? We ask it because we don't trust his wisdom. That what he's doing is far beyond what we could ever imagine. Think of Job, who wanted to know why, until he saw God and said, never mind, I'm good. You are wiser than I am. When you add those three attributes together, you see that God is completely trustworthy. One author put it this way, God, in his love, always wills what is best for us. God, in his wisdom, knows what is best for us. And God, in his sovereignty, has the power to bring it about. Therefore, he's trustworthy. And we should sleep well at night, knowing that God is in control. We're going to finish this story next week, and we're going to see God's power, God's love, and God's wisdom I think God gives us these stories because he knows, he knows that, that we're going to find ourselves in situations where we don't know the behind the scenes of exactly what's going on. And he asks us to trust him. And I'm thankful that he's shown, shared these stories with us. But I want to finish just with two verses that I've quoted throughout this whole pandemic. But they're the two most comforting verses that I, I to me, in all of Scripture. It's Romans 8.31, which says this, What shall we say to these things. Now, the context of this passage isn't talking about our earthly circumstances. But I'm going to ask that question. What do we say about the things that we see out in the world? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. We need to trust the Lord in this time. 
church, and I'm thankful to be a part of a mature congregation, and I've seen trust and faith in uncertain time that has spoken to me, and I thank you for that. But we have a chance in this uncertainty to be the church and shine and look different than the culture. We have a chance to be a witness for Christ and how we act and how we respond to what's going on. And we, can't, we should not waste this chance. So before I end in prayer, there's a couple things I'd like to ask. Um, and the first one is this, and I've been asking this throughout this whole sermon. I've been asking this throughout this whole week and last week. Please be patient and gracious with each other. I'm not saying this because I have examples in my head where we're not. I think our church has been gracious and patient with each other. But there are some things that really could divide us if we let it. Let's be patient and gracious and humble with each other. Right? Unity and love. I'm also, um, a couple just practical things. We are not passing anything out. That's why you didn't get a bulletin this morning. The state's asked us not to do that, and we're, we're going to follow those um, we're following certain guidelines to the best of our ability. There's other things they've requested us not to do, like singing that we said we're going to sing. Sorry. Um, they didn't say you must not sing. They said uh, please consider not to sing. We, we considered it. We're singing. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's wise not to pass offering plates out, so we're not doing that. The offering plates are in the back. There's people keeping an eye on them. Um, we should have more secure ones soon here. We ordered them. Um, but if you want to put an offering in the back or a prayer request in the back, the offering plates are just by the doors. Please do that. Um, this is the last service, so if you want a fellowship in here, you can. I've been asking the other church fellowships to go outside. There are people that are going to be cleaning, so it might be smart to, to, to get out and let, let us clean and fellowship a little bit outside if you can. Um, pay attention to Facebook, please. The website um, just because as of now, uh, Tuesday, we're going to have signups again. Thank you. The church was amazing at signing up. Um, just so you know, some people, especially last service, got put into the overflow room. Um, I don't think that's happened this service, uh, but maybe be willing to do that every now and then to go in there so other people can be in here and be gracious and patient with each other on that. Um, I would ask you to sign up. I know that seems so wrong to have to sign up for church. Uh, we're just trying to do our best to spread out, and we did. Like, every service was looked like this, like this number, perfect. Um, so please sign up again. The sign-up should come out Tuesday. Listen, if you can't figure out how to sign up, and if you're watching online, didn't come because it said it's full, come. But we'll find a place where you want you here. Um, the signing up just helps us get into the rooms. I'll say this, too. If you signed up, it's not like a concert ticket where it guarantees you a seat. You might get put in the over if you're late. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, but everyone's been so great today, and we made it, and it's been an exciting, joy-filled day. So thank you, guys. Um, Wednesday night, we have the hermeneutics class. I would encourage you to watch on live stream, 7 o'clock. If you want to come, you're more than welcome. This is, this is the room we're doing it in. There's plenty of room. As long as there's less than 100 people, which I'm sure will be the case, please come this Sunday if you want to come, or it's this Wednesday at 7 o'clock as we continue the hermeneutics class, which is interpreting scripture, how to handle scripture. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, 
I know these are, these are small things, but we still praise you, Lord, for them. And, and that's just that my voice made it through three services. Thank you, God, for your grace. It's amazing the things we take for granted that we think are small things that really aren't. They, they're a part of the, the sovereignty of you, Lord. And, and one of them, just being able to fellowship together, be together, sing together, hear your word together, pray together, Lord. I pray that I never take that for granted again. It's a privilege to do that. It's encouraging. God, help our church to be a witness to our community, to be a witness to every single person that is watching us on Facebook or or Instagram or anywhere else, Lord. That we trust in you through all the uncertainty that we see around us, God. We don't know what tomorrow holds, Lord, but you do, and we trust in that. Help us to be patient and gracious, Lord. Help us to be, just to be a witness. I just, I just think of Jesus and how calm he was in his ministry. Lord, help us to have that spirit, Lord, where, where we're just trusting you, God. I thank you for this day. Be with us as we go our separate ways. In your son's name, amen.